recording. Can you speak into it? Sure. Awesome. Hello, hello. How many of these have you done so far? You are number five. Awesome. And they're yeah. all on love. Yep. So I'm going to give a little a little rundown cool. uh, just to ground us in what we're doing. So welcome to Love Extremist Radio. I'm your host, Ethan Lipsitz, a self-proclaimed love extremist. We are dropping heart waves in the airwaves. <laughs> in the post-heat wave Los Angeles. Nice. It's been raining, yes. And I'm very excited today because one of my good friends and a really incredible leader in Los Angeles is here with me, uh, Rabbi Susan Goldberg. She is a spiritual leader enlivening Judaism and creating a more just and loving world. She's a rabbi at Wilshire Boulevard Temple, which is the oldest synagogue yep. in Los Angeles. Yes, it is and the creator of Nefesh, an open-hearted spiritual community within that community. Uh, she's a fourth-generation Angelino and has a special focus on revitalizing Los Angeles's East Side Jewish community, which is where I live and so definitely part of my heart, uh, to help it once again be an active part of the multicultural beauty of these neighborhoods. And that word multicultural is so integral in her work and what I know of you. and. It's been wonderful just having conversations about the dynamism of the faiths and the cultures of this city and how we engage. And so I'm, when I started the show, it was like no brainer. We need to have a conversation with Rabbi Susan about all of these things. Um, and so I'm grateful to have you here. Thank you for being here. Grateful to be here. Yeah. So I want to jump in with the ultimate question, which seems to actually be somewhat different for everyone, which is, how do you define love? I love that question. And it's something that I, I've, I give a lot of thought to because my spiritual practice is really rooted in love. You want to know, like, what is that exactly when you say right. love and what do you mean by it? The definition that I work with um, is that love is care, responsibility, and knowledge. Huh. And that's um, a, a definition that Eric Fromm um, used, uh, created, and then defined, and then many folks have used it over, over time. And um, the other main, uh, another, in addition to Torah and the wisdom tradition of the Jewish tradition, Eric Fromm, who had a really interesting uh, background as a, a Jewish man and uh, leaving war-torn Europe and being here, um, the other person who's, who defines, who also works with that def definition and then goes further is Bell Hooks mm -hmm. on her writing on love. So care, responsibility, and knowledge. So care, I think that a lot of people will go, of course, you know, I, yeah, okay, caring. That makes sense. Responsibility. Um, in the Jewish tradition, um, this idea of responsibility is bearing the burden of the other or... I like to say it in a different way, sort of carrying the other inside of self. So I carry you, I carry myself. Mm. And then knowledge is the one that I think really puts the, the secret sweet sauce into that definition of love because I think most people were like, yeah, care, responsibility. But knowledge is where it really deepens because knowledge says most people are okay saying, okay, I care for you, I'll be responsible for you. But knowledge says that love involves being seen and known. Mm. 
And in a lot of families, there is care and there is responsibility. But there's not always knowledge. And in fact, often in a family, the dynamic could be, I want to see and know certain parts of you. Other parts of you, those can go away. Mm -hmm. I, 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 I want to see certain parts of you, want to know and integrate who you are. But other parts of yourself, I'd rather not see. And so that's not knowledge. Mm. <laughs> knowledge says I want to see and I want to see you and know you fully. I want to see and know myself fully. And that includes parts that are hard to see and hard parts that may feel like, oh, I didn't know that about you. And that's for me, in terms of the spiritual practice of loving, um, that is really at, at the heart of it is that knowledge piece. And I think a lot of people will say, and this is the bell hooks piece where she says, when somebody says in a family, oh, my parents beat me, but they loved me. Right. She would say, actually, that's not love. Mm -hmm. They may have cared for you. They may have been responsible for you. Um, but that way of treating a human being is not loving and it's not love. And I would say that true around that knowledge piece that in order to, to feel and integrate love, there also has to be a place of knowing and wanting to know um, and mm -hmm. wanting to be fully known and seen. Mm -hmm. and, and in the context of the Bell Hooks reference, it's almost as if going one step further, using the knowledge to respond to respond. So the word responsibility is the ability to respond. Mm -hmm. I was just at a conference and a Native American elder shared that wisdom and the way that she picked apart the word. And it was such a beautiful way of phrasing yeah. it because we have a, the, you know, you think about responsibility and you think, oh, we are able to yes. respond. And so it almost kind of goes after the knowing as well, right? Yeah. Because in knowing, you then have the ability to respond yeah, to that and knowing. also makes you more responsible in the knowing in hebrew it's different the root it's achreut and acher of course so jewish right it, well it could be from this root from, <laughs> from that root it could be after achar which means i'm res i'm responsible for this moment in time and uh -huh. also the next moment what uh -huh. my action does now and how it ripples right and then another way of seeing it is acher other so I'm responsible for the other. And it also means that othering that we do to people, the othering that we do to side parts of ourselves, which to me, again, gets into that knowledge piece. Right. Because not only do we often not want to be seen and known by others, often we will do that to ourselves. You know, oh, these parts, my family or my lover didn't want to see. So I'll go ahead and pretend that that's not there. Right. Um, actually, I've just come this moment from sitting with them. Um, I'm sitting with a woman who's really working on what the Me Too movement is stirring up for her mm -hmm. and allowing herself to fully see um, what some of um, what it, what it is meant to be a survivor of, of sexual abuse and and the years of trying not to have that place known mm -hmm. inside of herself. Um, and so that time of disinter dis you know, disequilibrium as she is willing to now see more fully and integrate more fully what, what all of that, that means. And so that process of wanting to be known by others, you know, can be really healing and it can also help us to be able to see ourselves more fully. Right. It makes me think of a, a phrase that's come to me at times, which is truth is love, right? Mm -hmm. And knowing truth 
is whether that's an awful truth, right? It could be something very painful and very challenging, but to just be able to acknowledge what is true mm. is to do oneself and the world a favor. Mm-hmm. There's also something in the knowledge you were referring to family. And I often frame this conversation in three frames, that of self-love, that of uh, the love of partnership, or perhaps mm-hmm. that can also be part you know, the love of being a parent or being in family, and then the collective love. And you experience all three, yes. I know, as a rabbi and a congregation holder and a community leader and an activist. And so in the knowing side of things, how much can you truly know when you are operating in the collective? And is there a, a boundary to love in that way, in, in, in authentic love? in this definition, because if you're operating even with 10 people, it's very difficult to truly know 10 people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've really been interested in those studies that are looking at community and how many people you can hold around a hundred. The magic, right. 150, 100, right. Yeah. Makes sense to me, partly because there is a limit to how much we can hold in each other. Um, and I think there's different ways to do that holding. And I think there's different levels of intimacy and in loving. Sure. And I think that obviously the level of intimacy you can have in relationship with somebody who you're, you're, you're committed to as a parent, as a lover, as a spouse, as a good friend, uh, love between friends, so mm. important. Absolutely. <laughs> it's always interesting, you know, sitting with people when they lose a good friend, when there's a loss, when there's a grief and there's, Often so much, there is more of a language of how to talk about loss when it's inside of families. And then mm-hmm. it's not always the language to talk about loss of friends, but friend, friendship, so important. But then there's in that community space, there's that place to have a sense of connection to each other and a sense of love even beyond that into sort of humanity. You can have a place of holding a loving presence for humanity um, and it's a different kind of loving. It's not the interpersonal ways that you could do care, responsibility, and knowledge in the interpersonal. But it also works in that, you know, wanting to know on a bigger level what these stories are in the world, right? I mean, part of what's happening right now is hearing about, the, you know, sort of every day it feels like we have to take a breath because something else comes out that... Mm-hmm is hard sometimes to integrate in here. Mm-hmm. Um, we're being pushed in our capacity to, to know what's happening in the world. And so how do we support ourselves and continue to fill up our own well so that we have the space to continue to know the world more fully mm-hmm. um, and what it means. Right now, you know, I think about when it became known, more fully known what was happening with the separations at the border because it had been happening for many months before it was known. Mm-hmm. And how it transformed it when, when what was happening stopped being secret and the folks who had been at the border who had been hearing these stories found ways to communicate it more broadly. And then the responsibility that that then elicited, we had to respond. Right. And what it meant to respond at that time. Um, and I remember feeling, you know, so stirred up and there was a, how could you not as a, parent you know to think about somebody taking your child from you when you're trying when you're the only reason you're people don't want to leave their home (laughs) the reason you're leaving your home is because it's a desperate attempt to keep your your family safe Mm -hmm. and then to arrive here and have your family taken from you have your kids separated from you and so we went 
down to the border, there was a call for interfaith clergy to come and be witness and be at the border um, as the information was traveling from people who were helping immigrants at the border every day, you know, attorneys and social workers and immigrant advocates who were like, hey, hey, this is going on. It's been going on. Let's, let's get some support here. And then we were gathered um, down at this, you know, j- just south of San Diego at the California-Mexico border, and we were outside the walls of this um, detention center. It was also pretty overwhelming. It was kind of in the middle of nowhere, very high. You know, it was a prison, very mm-hmm. high walls, barbed wire, and then another layer, and then some more barbed wire so people couldn't, slatted windows. You couldn't really see, but we were there, and people started hearing us and yelling back to us. Wow. And... At some point, we all got quiet as a group just to hear, and we shout, you know, que necesitan, what do you need? And a mother shouted back, you know, where are my children? Mm. And it was a very um, troubling moment, and in, that, and in that there was a, well, responsibility, there was this achreyut, this need to carry her and to carry the others in there and to figure out what to do now, you know? So it was, it's been now many months of advocating, of raising funds, of supporting um, the stories to come out and to work together to place um, kids who need placement and all, all of the many things we, we could have done and are doing, great organizations doing the work that we're helping and supporting. And I also was down there with my daughter, wow. who's seven. And so I know like how to plug in, how to do the advocacy, how to, you know, how, and the next morning she was really still very, um, of course, disturbed. Yeah. And so she got up that morning and, you know, started baking. She and her dad baked all these cookies and they did, made all this lemonade because there was this effort for kids to make these lemonade stands to um, raise money to then send to the advocacy groups working at the border. And one of the things that was most impactful about that day where we sat in the park and she was selling the she was clear she wanted to do it on her own sell it and raise the funds and we're all of these conversations that she was having with other kids who were like yes i heard about this this is terrible mm-hmm. that part of what taking responsibility and loving allows us to do is also holds us right the taking so one of the other places around love is there's the feeling of love feelings of love and then there's the actions of loving right, the verb the verb and is very big on verbs <laughs> around <laughs> everything, around God, around it all. Right. And so to see that transformation happening from the place of, oh my God, I've just heard this cry for help. Now let me do some actions of loving that can not immediately alleviate the situation that was happening, but can work to do so and mm-hmm. can also hold the feelings of despair and hopelessness to know that, ah, if I take actions, actions of loving, that's part of also what we can do collectively when we're talking beyond just ourselves and our interpersonal relationships into caring for the world are these larger actions of loving. Mm. Um, And that's how I see activism um, is actions of loving. Wow. Yes, I completely agree. And I also see... Oftentimes there's, and to me, this expression, I I use the language of extremism so as to align with activists like Dr. Martin Luther King, who considered himself an extremist for love, but also because it feels as though there's so much of a a dark association with activism or uh, anger Mm -hmm. 
yes. and this sense of rage and the sense of expression of you know fists in the air and even in call out culture there's this kind of air of power struggle yes. right now that's going on and when we can step into a, a true loving approach to being an activist um, and even infusing love into an environment that might not have it, um, that is an act of activism unto itself. Absolutely. I also don't want to knock anger because I think that there's, there's a whole other conversation we could have about sure. anger and I think it has a role. And I think especially for people who have not had the opportunity to fully express anger, anger can be worked with to be a healing force. But I do think that, you know, growing up um, in, within a family of radical organizers and activists, I did often um, feel that the in, internal world was not always care, as cared for as the external world. Mm -hmm. And it was one of the reasons why I was always drawn to the clergy at these events. Mm. As a kid, you know, being involved in... Um, lots of movements for social justice and for human rights, um, really young, I would notice, I would always, I would felt like there was something that the, um, especially when we were doing solidarity work around the war in El Salvador and the situation in Nicaragua and Guatemala, mm. watching, the, watching the clergy at that time, it was, there were some rabbis, but it was mostly radical Catholics, okay. priests and nuns. There was something about their connection to the, to the protest that felt rooted in something deeper um, and that I know um, planted some seeds in me around, mm -hmm. oh, this is spiritual work and um, there is a way to make the world better that comes from a, a spiritual place, that comes from a place of healing and loving. Mm -hmm. um, and that really transformed how I saw political work and it led me on this path, you know, my had a, circuitous route to the rabbinate sure. <laughs> as a, as an art a dancer, choreographer, an artist. But when I kept coming back to what were the, what, I know I want to make the world better. I know I want it to be rooted in a, in a spiritual path that I had deepened over, over several years that I, I, you know, the pieces started falling into place and I am very grateful to those um, clergy who've been committed to nonviolence and, loving as a way to make the world, you know, loving actions to make the world better. Because I really do feel like um, that integration of the inner and outer um, is so core to me. I never talk about, you know, sometimes you can go to hear a sermon and it really is only outer focused, you know, and I think, well, that that's a political speech that's <laughs> i don't know yeah. if it's a spiritual teaching so outer being a commentary on, on the, world, the world what's happening mm -hmm. and then other times you can hear people talking about spiritual dimensions of peace of, of things without making any integration to the world around them mm -hmm. and i really feel on either side that something is lacking for me to have a whole spiritual experience it is that integration of self and other i also feel like it's going to help our movements continue mm -hmm. and uh, help individual organizers and activists not burn out right um, to make sure that we're supporting um, internally and I really do see it in the movements now there really there's different choices being made mm -hmm. um, around how to support the inner lives yeah. um, and because for me it's it's entirely integrated 
It absolutely is. And I, I had Dr. Metha Alhassan, a Syrian American um, teacher and activist and healer on the show. And she was talking about being that bridge between kind of the healing work that she does and activism mm -hmm. and how it's so necessary to yes. integrate and be able to offer her services and, and her you know, work as a healer um, to her community of activists and, and, and to be able to support those folks who are out often in the streets outwardly making commentary or sharing publication and work um, to try to change things. Um, it's also interesting to think a lot about how we define this kind of internal external life. I think the idea of privacy starts to come up um, and what is private today. And when we look at, for example, the Me Too movement, um, a lot of boundaries are crossed um, around taking what some people might consider to be private behavior into the public space. Um, and I don't know if you have thoughts about how, how that applies, but when I think about love, we talk about internal love, kind of the self-love, and then there's the, the dynamics of love and partnership. Um, sometimes they play out and sometimes they're one-sided, right? And in the context of abuse, um, maybe it's not even a loving environment at all, right? And that's just a, a, something that's coming out of fear and pain and struggle. Um, and then there's the collective and I, I, I guess I'm, I'm curious about like holding how you hold space for that kind of outing of kind of private um, non-loving acts um, oriented oftentimes in terms of sexual terror, right? Mm -hmm. That might be that might be um, enacted upon someone. Um, where do you see the the space for that in our culture? And 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 is that a public conversation? Um, yeah, I think I think it's such so it's great questions. I think we're definitely in this time of reckoning, yeah, in which things being heard can be healing mm -hmm. if they are done in a way that's intentional. Part of what happens when things just get released into the open is that uh, things can come back in ways that aren't that aren't healing. Yeah, we just did a. Um, just organized a healing havdalah. Havdalah is a ritual we do at the end of Shabbat and it involves spices and fire and uh, juice or wine and, and is a separation between the sacred and the everyday and, and is this time, this kind of liminal moment of crossing over. And I think that for people who are in that state of wanting to share truths of what happened to them, it is in this liminal state um, between a secret that they held and 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 a path of truth telling that they're willing to move into, and it was it was a very powerful um, gathering um, uh, for um, survivors of sexual assault and abuse, and for others to come and and be present and be witness. And it's something that now we're we're going to continue exploring, looking at doing that in an interfaith context. That's our next. Mm. sort of step to look at, you know, um, there's, there's much healing that needs to happen around these issues, specifically in the healing mm -hmm. communities. Yes. I mean, in many fields, but it being ours, there was a lot of um, pain that has been caused by clergy yeah. um, to young people and to adults. 
Yeah. And that can be extrapolated into positions of power. Absolutely. And so it's, yes, clergy certainly is one environment where there's power dynamics, there's, as right. is entertainment, Unfortunately, right? Unfortunately, no, no place is immune right. uh, to people using their power in ways that are not conscious and that are straight out destructive and hurtful. And so I think that one of the things that I really have concern around in the Me Too, sort of public Me Too movement right now, is around the place for an honest path of chuva, which means the path of, you know, return, self-work, that I'm not really seeing publicly being shared around perpetrators. Mm Mm-hmm. So when I put out the announcement to the temple that we were going to do a healing havdala, it was there were two parts to it. The first part said we're going to have a healing havdala together, and also putting out if people want to, they don't want to come to a healing circle but want to meet one on one. However, however, whatever could support people. But the second piece was if the Me Too moment of stirring up in you ways that you've acted in your past that you do not feel good about that were not okay, then this is also an opportunity for you to take stock. Not at the healing havdalah, but to take stock, come meet with a rabbi, come begin a process mm-hmm. of doing tshuva, of making amends, of working on this. Right. And which is integral into Yom Kippur, sorry to forget. Absolutely. And really, you know, we do these slachlanu like every day. It's part of our daily prayers. Mm-hmm. But in you know, I'm I'm concerned that there is not a place to really do that that. Mostly it is an accusation and a denial Mm -hmm. or an accusation. And then I'm going away to hide Mm -hmm. somewhere until this blows over and then maybe I'll come back. But there's not modeling of how to do an honest responsibility taking process of healing, of owning what happened, of talking about power, if it's a case of a man, of talking about masculinity, of what that looked like, about how they got in that, you know, to commit to therapy, to commit to group work with other perpetrators. You know, there's, there's so much more to the conversation, and I don't think that we'll have the kind of full society changes unless that part of the story, that those... That other piece can be heard and known and really taken responsibility for um, because it ends up putting all the onus onto the survivor. Mm-hmm. They're responsible for healing themselves, for healing themselves, for bringing it forward. Like, right. where are the people bringing it forward to say, I did this? Right. I'm taking responsibility, I'm not waiting to be outed. I'm not hiding in a corner going, uh-oh, I hope she never says anything. Yeah. It's, I did this. Here's what I did. Here's how I'm working on myself. Here's what I'm committing to doing differently. Right. Um, that piece. That piece. Yeah. And, 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 and that's, that is a really self-development, but it's also, there, there's something, the word empowerment keeps coming up for me. Because it's 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 not about someone who has power continuing to you know hold that, but rather to feel empowered to release, right? Empowered to heal and to work through it, and not to ignore it or not to come back to some sort of, um, yeah, taking. But and and I want to say that I'm I I think that that needs to be held with loving as well. Yes. 
you, you know, people who are going to commit to doing that healing work. But the more we separate and say you're othered and you're not, there's no, you know, how, how, how do these things change? Right. If we are not willing to get really into the muck of how they got this way in the first place. Yeah. And try to heal them. I want to use, continue on the path of healing, um, but take a little bit of a turn. Uh, you and I unexpectedly ran into each other in an interesting environment <laughs> yes, last <me> year. <laughs> and it was not a place I would have expected <laughs> to run into you, Susan. And I um, think there's a lot there. Um, but I will just say um, last year I was diagnosed with a malignant brain tumor and went through a process of surgery and in Boston and then came back to Los Angeles to undergo treatment um, at a Kaiser Permanente facility uh, where I was doing radiation treatment. And during that time, I ran into Susan in the radiation uh, waiting room yes. with her family. And we ran into each other a number of times. Yes, we did. Daily and, for a little bit. Yeah. And it was both so wonderful and also like, <laughs> what Mutually are awful. we here? <laughs> yes. In this basement space with our yeah. names on that board. Yeah. What a... What a crazy, unique yeah. experience that yeah. I hope few listeners have to experience. But how did you maintain and engage in your heart and in love through that process? And would you like to speak a little bit on, on your experience? Yeah, I, I love that recounting. That makes us in some ways laugh. That to me feels really <laughs> yeah. good. Yeah, right. Um, yeah, I call it like the special club. There were only some of us that got to go, to go down to the A-level. <laughs> only some of us got to go to the basement. Um, yeah, so it, um, so unexpected. Yeah, I had this growth um, with cells dividing, the cancerous growth in front of my um, ear. And my primary treatment was the daily radiation. I also did some chemotherapy along with it. And it was, you know, talk about, being open to the known and unknown Oof. boy never i know you too wow never imagined right. never imagined such an experience happening and then had to deal with what was had to then integrate this information now being known you right. know and 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 to continue continuing to integrate what what all that um has meant it's, it's been it's been one year since i um completed treatment uh, about a month ago. Mazel tov. Thank you. It was a year and I've had, you know, clear scans all the way since. And, awesome. um, and it was, oh, you know, I was describing it the other day that um, it was definitely a, a, an experience where like the ground fell out from under me. Everything started spinning. How could this possibly be happening? And in that ground falling out, one of the most incredible things was finding that there were deeper roots under the ground mm -hmm. that were there waiting to support me. And so it felt like dropping out and then being held. A trust fall. A trust fall. Literally up through the roots of just sort of whop through the roots up through the rest of my body. Mm. Um, these roots that are the found the deepest most ancient foundation of what we know to be true love and kindness and compassion. You know, we'd say Ahavan, Rachamim and Chesed, but certainly 
qualities shared by all ancient paths. Um, and it felt like it was an experience where since everything else, you know, was spinning, that those um, deepest spiritual qualities just held me like crazy and I held on to them like crazy. And, and um, you know, Rabbi Steve Leader, who's one of the rabbis, uh, that I work with at, at Wilshire Boulevard Temple, he said to me, you know, there's going to be many blessings that come out of this experience. Yes. But it will never have been worth it. <laughs> <laughs> it's so true. Would I have wanted that experience to happen? No. Right. Would I want it to happen to anyone? No. Do I f feel absolutely transformed and deepened in my own spiritual path and my own heart opening to the world and my own sense of joy and love. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. I mean, uh, yeah. I mean, there are times now where I just feel so overwhelmed. Um, you already know I'm a pretty joyful person. To begin yeah. with, so. You weren't doing so, so bad before. <laughs> I was already full of joy and love and now it's really, it is really, yeah. And not to say that it wasn't terrifying. Right. And sad, there was lots of grief in there and sadness for my kids, mm -hmm. my beloved sweetheart who was holding me through all of this and the terror that it caused for all of them and my parents and my right. close ones, my beloved community, and the, how much fear there was for all of us. Um, I did a ritual called a mikvah, which is a mm -hmm. ritual bath um, at the one-year marking of the diagnosis date. Um, mm -hmm which was in April, and I went with a group to the, to the mikvah to immerse. And as I was getting ready to immerse, you don't go in the mikvah to get clean. It's not a clean, not clean thing, because you have to be entirely clean before you get in. Mm -hmm. it's, more, it's about a spiritual change of state. Mm -hmm. And so I had to make sure I was you know, brushing my hair, cleaning under my nails. It was a whole process to get entirely clean before you go into the mikvah. And out in the hallway they were waiting to come in and they were going to sing to me inside the mikvah and it turned out as they were learning the songs that there was lots of weeping and there was a a space that was good for me to be away where they could share about how much fear they had held during that year um and to allow it also to be a time of of healing for them um so not to say that it wasn't a time of um great great fear and concern and lots of things. Um, I, I talk about it being the wilderness, you yeah. know, being thrown into the wilderness. Um, as much of our sacred book, the Torah is in the wilderness, right? We, we leave Egypt pretty quickly into our <laughs> narrative and then all the rest of our sacred books are wandering to, in the wilderness. Yeah. And in fact, we don't even get to the promised land. We're at the edge of it. And then we go back and start again. Right. And so much of our lives is wandering through the wilderness. And certainly when you get a diagnosis, it throws you into the wilderness in such yeah. an incredible way. And so to have the foundations of the love and the compassion and the kindness I mean, those people who work down in that basement, those oh. radiation therapists, right. I, I have no words to describe the kind of kindness, compassion, and love that they were working with every day and how much of a difference that made and the others in the waiting room and the open-hearted. You know, I remember one day I just sat down, this woman looked right at me and she said, you know what? I'm scared. <laughs> like, <laughs> I hear you. This is scary. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I found a, a real deepening of um, of my spiritual practice and of just the sense of being held mm -hmm. by 
by a by a greater love, by a larger whole. Yeah. Carrying me. It's so fascinating to see those morsels or those individuals that show up and and bring that joy and that radi- little radiation in the radiation. Um, and then also to experience this collective that goes beyond your family and just to witness the impact that you have already made as a human being and to see, oh, there's, there's this group of people outside the mikvah who are experiencing my journey in their own bodies. And that was so such a phenomenon to me. So rarely do we actually put ourselves into the body of a friend or family member mm-hmm. until it becomes until it becomes at risk, until it becomes damaged or you know something comes up or its its permanence becomes in question. And and then it's and then healing becomes a collective effort. And it's fascinating because I've noticed this as well in my journey is that I, I don't see healing as a personal journey anymore. Right. right? And we all often assume Absolutely. like, oh, you're sick. I'm healthy. Right. right. And, and people kind of like, oh, you're a survivor. Right. Or there's all these labels yeah. to be put Not on. Not into those labels. It's so hard. I mean, honestly, I think survivor may be the, my favorite one so far. But I've like, I don't like oh, being any of those things. Can I share with you things. the term that I use? What's that? Um, so Susan Sontag talks about this idea of, you know, we all are, you know, there's the land of the well and the land of the sick. Right. And as much as you want to be in one, sooner or later, you're going to have to use the passport for the other. <laughs> yeah. And so I was talking to also someone who, who is, a, in your language, a survivor of right, cancer. Right, right. And we were talking about this idea of the lands, of like being in the land, mm-hmm. in each of these lands. And we talked about being expatriates. I am oh. an expatriate of cancer land. Right. Wow. An expat. That's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a great way to put it, right? We've, we've been through this we've and yeah, we've, we've come out. But there's so many examples of immense love in there. And yes, I remember going onto the, into the OR when I was about to get my brain cut open. And this woman, I, while they were putting the anesthesia into my veins, this woman just held my hand and looked in my eyes. That was it. And I would say she was the most powerful medical professional I've ever engaged with. And it was simply just this human to human. I see you. We're going in, you know, and I am holding you here. And it almost brings me to tears just thinking about that. It was just such a beautiful thing. I I don't, I didn't even catch your name, but whoever you are working at the mass general with the neuro team, thank you. You know, there is something about, you know, getting the diagnosis and then like, oh, now you're in these rooms. You're in the infusion room. You're in the radiation room, the room that, I, you know, I, I grew up in LA. I had Kaiser my whole life, Kaiser Sunset. Like, I didn't even know these rooms existed, right? I didn't need to know because totally. I wasn't going down to the basement on Sunset there. And inside of these rooms are these human beings that, that, care for people day in and day out in this in this place that are just just so beautifully warm and open-hearted yeah i mean i feel i feel very very grateful for that and in some ways wish that that sort of secret basement interactions could be what human beings could do with each other up on the street level right i kept thinking the sort of 
hi, I'm scared. Right. <laughs> hi, could you, could you just hold my hand here? You yeah. know, that this way of being, um, and I'm involved with the cancer support community and right. in Pasadena and, and, and the way in which people of different faiths, different cultures, different ages, different types of, can- you know, we're all in this land at this moment and we're helping each other through it. Mm-hmm. Um, would be pretty remarkable if some of that could trickle into the, the land of the, the other lands where people are assuming they're well. Right. Well, I, th- I like to, to think to having been radiated, we now get the chance to radiate, right? I like and, that. And we can transmute that energy as love, right? And as joy. And so, yes, I, I agree. I, I, I wish that there was more of that vulnerability. And it's, it's, it, it's in our power to, to offer space to hold that. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I know that's you do that a lot. I, I want to go back to what you were saying about um, interfaith clergy and just in general, kind of the framing of um, separation versus uh, non-separation, I guess, I mean, I mean connection. The, oftentimes we find community and we find our faith or whatever our collective identif- identifier might be. And we call that our people. That's our community. That's where we go for love and connection. And sometimes that creates a real separation amongst people. And that separation has led to war, right? It's mm-hmm. led to extreme violence. And even within religions, right? You have different orthodoxies and, and, and perspectives. And I think doing your work in both bringing Judaism to popular culture. Um, shout outs to Transparent, the TV show where Susan is a advisor and the, ra- consultant, the yeah, consultant. Rabbi the consultant. Ra- Who yeah. even knew there was such roles? Awesome. I am right. a rabbi consultant. <laughs> so cool. For my good friend, Jill Soloway and all the wonderful human beings who've made that show. Yeah, it's a great show. And, and, and just, you know, sp- sp- both in, in the work of spreading the Jewish faith yes. and then also... Integrating work. it. I'm curious kind of where you're finding stories of love and connection and, and really where those lines are crossing. Yeah, a lot of that I'm finding in the interfaith work for sure. Um, you know, one of the things that's interesting uh, I find is that the more, for you know, all of us walking these ancient paths, um, we are going to the same place, but getting there in different paths, right? We're headed towards the love, the justice, the kindness, Mm -hmm. the truths. And each of the paths are so, so profoundly beautiful. And I know my own, uh, you know, deeply because it's a path that I walk in our, in our, in our Jewish tradition. And I've also had the opportunity and the really expansive opportunity to get to learn about other traditions and find that the more that I know my own, the more that I am able to more deeply connect with other paths. And I think that's something that gets lost. I think often people say, well, I'm going to dip into a little of this and I'm going to dip into a little that and I'm going to make up my own sort of buffet buffet of new age or maybe you call it something else, spirituality, and I'll borrow from there, I'll borrow from that. And often it's taken out of Um, the foundation where it grew, right? Um, And so you don't really get the depth of the tradition. 
And when you commit to a path, um, not in a way that disconnects you, but in a way that opens you up to more fully connecting with others, I, I have really found the most profound um, um, opportunities for interfaith and intercultural connection are, are when you know your own culture and when you know your own faith. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that often happens in this country is that we're encouraged to assimilate away our cultures, our languages, our spiritual traditions. And that doesn't lead to something more delicious. It leads to something much more diluted and bland and without a lot of depth. Right. Um, So, you know, it's also part of what I try and do for Jewish folks who've assimilated to the point that they often don't know their traditions. Right. Um, And in the past, Jewish education did dilute. And I think it was not not the right way to go. Try to making things accessible by trying to dilute. It's sort of not, that's the opposite way that I go. I try and make them just as complicated and hairy as they are Mm. because that's where the deeper lessons and the deeper truths are and where we can wrestle with stuff that's ugly. I mean, all traditions have them and it's part of the process of learning and, and it leads to some of the great depth of the spiritual wisdom that we can mine from our own tradition that other people can mine from theirs. And I think that when you are a, part of deeply knowing an ancient path and doing so in a way that's open to others. Mm-hmm. There is, I was, I'm a part of the um, Southern California Muslim Jewish Forum, and we were just having this conversation today around coming at it in the perspective of one of the teachings is this idea of many faces of truth. Mm-hmm. Um, this was a Rav Cook um, teaching and, and, you know, um, uh, one of the Muslim members of the group was saying, yeah, this comes up for us too, you know, those of us who believe that there are many different ways of practicing and those who believe there's one way and if you don't practice that way, there's only one truth. And, you know, right. That in the end, often we have more in common with each other across faith yeah. than sometimes we do within our own faith right. with fundamentalists right, 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 right. who say there's only one way. In fact, they have more in common with each other yeah. The bigger picture. There's only one way you're in or you're out, you know, that those of us who are not like us are out, you know, yeah. they, they actually could all get together and do their own thing. Right. And have us. <laughs> and find harmony in that. Yeah. And have us who are open to each other. I mean, I, and have had very moving and deeply um, transformational learning opportunities with folks in other faith traditions yeah. from a place of solid knowledge of my own. Right. Um, and, and that's really what I wish for my kids and, and for my nieces and nephews. And, and I have nieces and nephews who are, who are multicultural and that they, they, they have an opportunity to deeply know their, their, the many parts of who they are. And they really do claim them, the, you know, both, um, the cases of my, my brother and sister-in-law's kids, their Guatemalan identity, mm. their Mayan background mm. with their Jewish, um, background and, the depth at which they explore that and the beauty of which they know who they are is really profoundly moving. Wow. And one of the um, ideas in the past was that that wasn't possible mm-hmm. to deeply know who you are. Now, it requires energy and commitment, mm-hmm. especially in a culture that says, oh, you don't need to be different, just follow along. Right. To do the work to really know your history, your histories requires that commitment 
to yeah. being a part of the learning of that, to continue the cultural practices and traditions. And then in doing that, it really deepens how we can know ourselves and how we can know others. It's such an interesting thing, that, that point of multicultural, kind of multi-faith integration. It makes, it's funny, funny story. I was driving through Silver Lake today and there was, I noticed a restaurant was gone, one of my old favorites, which was called Cowboys and Turbans. And it was a Mexican Indian place. And it was this delicious integration of two cultures. Imagine a chicken tikka masala burrito. I mean, with guacamole, are you kidding? Like it's the best invention of all time. Put a little sour cream in there. I mean, you're doubly full after you eat these things. But that, it, there's these delicious surprises that come out of this mixing of culture, this fusion, and what you're saying about tradition is so right. We just had a beautiful Seder uh, over Passover, the traditional Passover meal, and I invited a lot of friends who had never been to a Seder before, and it was one of the most amazing dinners we've had in our friendship. And my parents were there, and we were sharing the story of Passover and reading from the the Haggadah, and it was just this beautiful sharing of our culture. And I think that's really what's interesting is to be able to take these traditions and share them and open them up to those who might not necessarily identify, but then they do. They always find the commonality. There's always that thread that says, oh, this reminds me of what we used to do in my house growing up or, you know, oh, this story, of course. I mean, we all know the story. Many know the story of you know, Moses in Egypt and the freeing of the slaves and all this. And so there's such amazing reference points. And I really appreciate you saying that, that the traditional path is a deepening uh, of, of self and, and an ability to actually connect more deeply with others. Yeah. And there is also that piece of responsibility in it that that, that has the after part, the ripple part, because if we don't do that carrying forward, mm-hmm. And it also won't be here for the generations to come. Right. And that's a real reality right. in the United States, certainly. Be- partly because we, it's a place of freedom and it's a place of opportunity. Um, but it's also, there's costs to that. You know, there's been costs around giving up identity and cultural practices and other ways of seeing the world. And that unless we commit to... Really knowing our ancient traditions in a way that speaks to us spiritually that we can pass on, mm-hmm. um, there's, there's, a, there, there's a reality that they won't always continue. Um, and when we hear about that happening to other cultural groups, we go, oh gosh, that's awful. And yet a lot of Jewish people don't see, oh yeah, but see brother, see sister, this right. could be happening to this us. This is happening here. Well, and, and so yeah. it's interesting because I think in the context, bring it back to quote unquote love, oftentimes there's this thought that marriage is an expression or meant to be a like sanctify a love a loving bond in the jewish tradition and faith and i'm curious as to your thoughts about the importance of marriage in our culture because if i look i see most of my peers in los angeles well into their 30s not married yeah i see many people questioning the value of marriage um you see a lot of marriages that are um interfaith or um, same sex, right? Or just mix and, and, and a lot of marriages that don't work out. And so, yeah, as, as a, as someone who, yeah, that, that's a tradition that also has some value for the faith and has a lot of tradition around it. What's your perspective on that as it relates to? 
I think it's true okay. that there's a generational shift around marriage, around the timing of when to marry, and also um, uh, looking at it, especially people who are raised by divorced parents, mm-hmm. wanting to make sure that when you commit into a relationship that you're committing into something that you can really sustain. Yeah. Um, because of knowing intimately the pain of what it was like to experience divorce. That was true for me. Yeah. I declared very young that I would never get married. In fact, there was an article about my dad. Uh, as I said, he was a longtime radical organizer and activist, and he had been one of the leaders of the free speech movement in Berkeley and did a, did a lot of work in Los Angeles as a community lawyer in Echo Park for many years. And I don't even remember what the article was about, some profile on something he was doing. And they, there was like, and his daughter said she'd never get married. And I was like, why is that relevant to this article? Uh, but that was true. I had this reaction, you know, to, and in fact, my parents never got married because they didn't believe in the institution, but they were together and we called it a divorce. In any case, the divorce idea really affected me. And I thought, oh, I'm not doing this. And then I, in my partnership with my husband, there came a point where I realized that, um, that I could go in, into this relationship in a different way, in a way that was open to loving with that care, responsibility, and knowledge. Right, right. Coming back to all that. And, yeah. you know, we also, he and I both are, uh, involved in the practice of nonviolent communication, which I really, really value, mm-hmm. um, and and uh, and owning our stuff around all kinds of different things in our loving and finding, as my Jewish um, spiritual practice was deepening over the years, this idea of the community as witness too, right? That yes. happens at a wedding. It's not a so it's not a duo event. It's about the community committing also to supporting this couple. Similarly to the healing thought. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And it's that generational piece. I am really right now very into the idea of generational healing, Mm. um, going backwards and going forwards uh, so that the work that we do now to heal um, changes ourselves in ways that can then heal those to come. Yes. You know, we hear about epigenetics a lot, and, and, and usually it's talked about in the realm of trauma. Um, but I'm really interested right now in the idea of healing. Uh, similarly, the ways that trauma can be passed down, I think healing then can be passed down. That's beautiful, yeah. And so the other thing that happens at a wedding is also this. And, and, and one of the blessings at a wedding and the Sheva Brachot sort of point to the past at a time when ancient past when Zion, when Jerusalem was destroyed and that this is some regathering of some of that energy mm-hmm. every time people come back together in this way. So I also think it's a, it's a communal process. It's a generational healing. And then I think there's something um, very profound about a covenantal relationship hmm. and about people figuring out what that covenant is for them. Right. It doesn't have to be identical for everyone and to do the conscious work of figuring out what that covenant is. Right. It's interesting. It's like writing a manifesto. Yes. Which is so relevant. I mean, to any project, right? Knowing your principles, knowing what's important and how you communicate and and how you relate. Yeah. Wow. Are you thinking about these things? Yes, <laughs> these of course. Questions? Of course. I mean, always. I I my parents are still together and very yeah. much love each other. 
and I'm 34, you know, and, and, and this is, and most of my peers in Los Angeles, some are engaged, some are married. Um, some have started families, many haven't. Yeah. And it's partially an anomaly of the city and certain cities and certain uh, professional paths and other priorities for folks. Right. Um, sometimes other things come up. In my case, you know, I've had some derailment and life changes yes. and things that have come up. Um, but I, I am really curious about how we often associate love and marriage, just like we associate intimacy and love. And I think the generation before us, our parents' generation kind of proved that, well, love and marriage, maybe those things aren't always and, and plenty of generations before that can say, you know, those things didn't always line up, right? Maybe it was you No, know, it's a very, of, very, very new idea in the course of human history yeah. that love was connected to marriage. And I think we're still really figuring it out. Right. And there's some big questions about it. Right. Certainly the idea of separating a family out from their community, which was sort of this, you know, 1950s, 60s, moved out to suburbia. Mm -hmm. That's making it. Making it is to separate you from the, your elders and separate you from your community. I mean, I think there's certainly, you know, that's that's not helpful, especially in child raising. You right. need the elders. You need your friends. You need other adults around to support you because it's so much better for the parents to be supported and for there to be many adults also loving kids. So that idea, I think, yeah, that was... That was a failed experiment. That was a failed experiment. I think that the idea of having families supported by other families around, by other friends who choose not to have children but can be fantastic aunties and uncles. Right, babysitters. And, yeah, faya yeah. and matua, they say in, in, in Maori. Mm. Um, my family is, half of my family, my mother's side is in New Zealand. Right. And several of my family members, my cousins are, mixed relationship, Maori and Pakiha, Pakiha meaning the Europeans. Mm -hmm. And that I, concept of that aunties and uncles, the faya and the matua, that they are around you, that yeah. they are a part of your life, that any person of that age is your auntie, you know, and your uncle and that way of caring for kids. We've really, really value. I, I appreciate that my parents gave us that in the sort of community of radicals that we were raised around, that it was very intentional, the preschool that they started, the play group. And they really gave us, I like to call it like an intentional community in an urban environment. That's cool. And we started a preschool when our kids were little with people that some of them who went to that preschool with me mm -hmm. and then others who I had known since high school. And also my brother was part of his family members and we still are very much my oldest is now 14, which is crazy, Amazing. but still very much in each other's lives. And they're still going to school together, the kid, you know, and still supporting each other because every new stage of development, we need to be like, wow, what's this now? Right. How do we, um, that? so doing that in community, uh, we also in our home live with our, with my very good friend and her son. And so there we have three adults in our house that's and four amazing. kids. And that's wow. very helpful. I'll bet. <laughs> Yeah, that's incredible. It's just adding one. So I think there are ways that we're rethinking. This Our generations are rethinking mm -hmm. um, how to support relationships, how to support long-term relationships and families. And I think that rethinking is important. Right. And I think that the, the rituals and the covenants 
that are a part of the core structure are also very important. Mm, thank you. This has been such an awesome conversation. I feel like we could talk for hours about, I mean, we got into activism and health and family and marriage, all the things, right. And it's all about love. So I guess a closing question is how, how can you share practices or maybe a, a quick story around love radiation and how our listeners who are paying attention to this can really bring love into their world? Oh, there's so many ways. Mm. Um, you know, I mentioned this nonviolent communication practice. That's a beautiful practice for interpersonal relationships. People have never heard of it. It's something to look up. YouTube's um, got a lot on it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there's ways to do self-loving practices that are so important, um, especially people going through healing uh, of, of emotional trauma, of, of things emerging in their physical bodies. I really, really appreciate support groups. Mm. I really think gathering with people who are going through whatever it is that you are too, probably find a group for it. Yep. Whether it's, you know, the 12-step model of addiction recovery, finding a cancer support group, finding a survivor of sexual assault, uh, finding a parent support group, whatever that might be. Uh, that people find other human beings who are walking on similar paths to get support from is so mm. important. And then I also think being involved in making the world a better place is really an act of loving that can support us and support the world. And there's so many ways to do that. It's There's, there's an abundance of issues. So it's right. about sort of saying, what is the one I want to look at? Finding an organization doing the work and then being of service being of service is, is a tremendous way to bring more love into your life and more love into the world. Mm. That's great advice. Thank you. Where do people find you? What's the best way for so Yeah, I'm at to... Wilshire Boulevard Temple yes. and the Nefesh community. We get together on the first and third Friday nights of every month here in LA at 730. Anyone's welcome to join us. We have a 6.30 vegetarian potluck mm. and then a 7.30 service on the first and thirds. Um, lots and lots of things going on at the temple and always welcome awesome. people of any faith who want to come and experience. Beautiful. And are you digitally attached or pretty pretty offline these days? No, I don't know. I'm, I'm in the digital world. I mean, I have Twitter. I have Instagram. I don't really use Twitter and Instagram very much. I'm one of those uh, old people who mostly uses Facebook, if I'm honest. Right. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> I, you know, I could probably have more of a digital presence than I do, but I do like the real life communication and Got it. real life presence. Go, go find, so come to a go service. find, right. Go find <laughs> Rabbi Susan. <laughs> that sounds like a plan. And what's the love song that can take us out of this show? What's oh, your favorite love anything song? Anything by Al Green. Oh, what's, what's, what's the first one that comes to mind? Oh, maybe Love and Happiness. Love and, mm, great one. Awesome. Thank you, Rabbi Susan, for being here. And thank you. Thank you for listening. This is Love Extremist Radio, and we are going to drop Love and Happiness by Al Green. Peace. So much more to discuss. Let me just stop on yeah. this guy. I was checking to make sure I was like had this like.
worry that it wasn't And you recorded. never press play. Well, or that, like, something glitched. 